So simple question at the beginning. I would venture to, uh, to say that among those of us here today, if we were to ask, do you know what love is? Simple question. I would venture to say that among those of us here, if we were asked that question, do you know what love is? Uh, most of us, of course, would say, sure. Yes. Of course. Duh. I know what love is. I'm not a smart man, but I know what love is. My Forrest Gump is not too good. Maybe foreigner comes to mind. I want to know what love is. Uh, Maybe the 90s, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. You should not know that song. You should not know that song. Uh, Maybe you're more like the 60s, Boston, uh, more than a feeling. We could go on and on and on like this uh, with dorky Uh, pictures of what love is that we learn from the world, that we learn from songs around us, uh, that we see in uh, the world around us. But we want to talk about Jesus, so let's focus back on this question. Uh, I would venture to say that if most of us were asked, do you know what love is? Generally, we would say, well, of course I know what love is. Yes, duh. (laughs) But I went at the beginning, at the outset, to propose uh, that I think we have learned a whole set of understandings about love that come from all over the map, all over the world. And I want to propose that we actually really hardly understand what is involved in true love until we understand the cross. This is at the heart of John's text today uh, that will unpack our problem when it comes to understanding what love is And and we're not going to open up the whole entire Pandora's box to try to explain everything. But our problem in understanding what love is, is that modern definitions of love and our examples of love that we have in our lives, popular songs that we've heard about, all the various factors and understandings that are out there that were so far off that they instruct us in a way that is not cross-shaped Jesus-like Love. That means that we intuit all these understandings about what love is that render the word love for us almost relatively meaningless in practical terms because it is almost entirely personally relative. Let me say that again. Modern definitions. And examples of songs and understandings of love, examples we have in our lives, things we see in movies and on media. Those kinds of definitions that are out there in the world, many of which we intuit without being aware of them, those are so far off so as to render for us the word love almost meaningless because we have intuited an understanding that is almost entirely personally relative. We've, we, we've intuited an understanding that love, love is what makes me feel good. Both in what I receive and in what I get. 
if a relationship with a person or a thing or a concept or a, a sports team brings me good feelings, that's love, right? Like, like that's the sort of definition we've intuited from the world around us. I'm here to say today that if we are to know what love really is and how we should love one another, we cannot for fear of learning a false gospel of self-worship that leads to death, we cannot give in to the world's definitions. Let me say that again because there's a lot there. If we are to know what love really is, a biblical, godly, cross-shaped, Jesus-like love, if we are to learn how we should love one another for real in Jesus' kinds of ways, we cannot, for fear of learning a false gospel of self-worship that leads to death, we cannot give in to the world's definitions we've intuited. There's a lot we have to unlearn. I'm proposing today that we need to start over. To relearn love. To open our hearts and our minds to hearing first, foremost, preeminently, primarily, only from God about what love is in Jesus. To press reset on a huge idea like love today is a pretty big goal for one sermon. So we're not going to do that in all the ways possible. But I do want to propose that if we are to live like Christ, follow him to the cross, understand what he's done for us, live a cross-shaped life, we're going to have to unlearn some wrong ideas about love, which is going to require humility. It's going to require patience. It's going to require unpacking and naming and understanding the things that we need to unlearn. We need to do a reset on our understanding of love. No big deal, right? (laughs) Sounds easy for one sermon. Let's jump in at verse 11 and see together how it is that God wants to say to us, That love is something that looks like Jesus. And in this series called Prove It, we're talking about how people are the proof of God's presence. We're going to see together in the text today how our love for one another is the proof of the presence of God. Our love for one another can be the proof of the presence of God living in us and in the world around us. So we start today in verse 11. Let's jump in there. 1 John 3, verse 11. We're sort of starting mid-conversation here. We'll give a little context. Verse 11 says this. We're going to spend quite a bit of time in verse 11 and then pick it up from the rest. Verse 11 says this. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. This is the message you've heard from the beginning. This isn't the first time it's been said to you, John writes, that we should love one another. The message you've heard from the beginning is that we should love one another. Now, quick, quick bit of context here. Uh, We talked about this a little bit last week. Uh, John is writing to believers in churches who had been uh, infiltrated by false teachers. Uh, Those false teachers were called the docetics. Uh, Docetism is a word we'll put on screen here. If you want to Google this, uh, go ahead and Google this word. Uh, This is is what the false teachers were believing um, in various forms of it. Uh, Just Google that word. The fourth result that comes up is probably the best one on the first page. Just FYI. Um, so verse 11, these false teachers had perverted the message of loving one another through their docetism and they had left the church 
In other words, there was basically kind of a church split here. And uh, those who were left in the local body, those to whom John was writing here in 1 John, those who were left had a bunch of hard feelings about it, obviously, because people had said, hey, you don't really understand Jesus, right? We're out of here. And so those who were left were left with all these hard feelings by these false teachers who left. So just think about this for a second. If you had church friends whom you loved and who you knew well, you engaged in worship together, you served in a team together, you, uh, you know, connected in the life group together, your kids went to youth group together, they went to school together, uh, you went to, to lunch after church together, you ate in each other's homes. If you had these good church friends who left because of a doctrinal or a theological and important thing, and sometimes that's worth leaving about, if you had good churches who left and they were the ones who accused you of being somehow spiritually deficient or not understanding Jesus correctly, uh, you know, throwing the Jesus juke at you, you would feel rejected, right? You'd feel like the less than one. <laughs> You'd have intellectual inferiority complex like we talked about and like I admitted to last week. So, so John writes here to reassure those who were left here in verse 11 that their love for one another was the proof that God was in them, that they were born of the Spirit, that they were the real deal, okay? Now, before we move on from verse 11, it's important to, uh, to notice one thing here about this verse that is in three words at the end of verse 11. Remember, verse 11 says, this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, Love one another is something that is a short phrase that John loves to pack a lot of meaning into. Okay, this is a phrase that comes to the text here with this large history. You know, words kind of come to uh, us through John, uh, these sort of pregnant words and phrases. Pregnant because, you know, there's a lot going on in them. Uh, So he throws out this three-word phrase here, love one another, as if we should understand everything that he means by it. Uh, so, so we look at this and we read it on the surface, on the face of it. We read it plainly and, and we think, oh, sure, I understand what love one another means. Duh, who doesn't understand that? It means to love one another. But remember, John likes to pack a lot of meaning into these phrases. And this is uh, one of those phrases that comes with a history. So let's look at the history for a bit. He's saying this in verse 11 because Jesus had already taught about what love one another means. Jesus had said this already in the beginning when he first came and when these first followers of Jesus uh, began to follow him. Look in uh, John 13 with me. We'll put this on the screen. In John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says this, A new commandment I give to you. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And then he defines it this way. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now in the Old Testament, in Leviticus 19, the people of God, and a few other places, Leviticus 19, the people of God had already been commanded to love their neighbor as themselves. You've probably heard, love your neighbor as yourself as a way to express love. But then here Jesus comes along, and in John 13, he comes along and he says, 
You're not just to love one another as yourself. You are to love one another as I have loved you. Which is an entirely different animal altogether. Like that takes love and infuses it with this depth of meaning that probably was a radical thought for them once they understood what Jesus meant. I mean, think about this for a second. You know how Jesus loved you, right? I mean, he, he looked at you, he looked at me, he looked at what's in our hearts, he looked at how we take the gift of his grace and we pervert it and, and we act in ways that aren't in keeping with his holiness. He looked at you, he looked at me, he said, your ugly sin against me and against the Holy Father means that you need help you cannot provide for yourself. So what Jesus said is, what I'm going to do is I'm going to come down to your level and I'm going to live a perfect life on your behalf and then I'm going to become a sacrifice that dies in your place. He said, you think you know what love is? Let me show you what love really is. Jesus in effect says, let me show you what I mean by what love really is. And and this commandment in John 13 was new (laughs) because Jesus took love to a newer and to a deeper level of understanding. What was new was this love like Jesus part, which means that from now on, after John 13 plus the cross, from now on, loving one's neighbor was no longer equivalent to love for self, which was radical enough, right? Now the measure of love for neighbor and for others was Jesus' love for us. So jump back to 1 John 3, verse 11. So when John says in verse 11, this is the message you've heard from the beginning. Jesus has been telling us this all along. And he defined it for us there. And so those three words at the end of verse 11, love one another, has a history to it. It implies something that John wants to remind them of here. John is reminding them here in verse 11 of the standard of love for the follower of Christ. And the standard of love for the follower of Christ is Christ. The standard of love for the follower of Christ is not what you've heard in a song. It's not what you've learned from your parents. It's not what you have learned in your relationship with others. Unless it is a cross-shaped death to self, bring others into life, you included kind of way of living. The standard of love for the follower of Christ is Christ. And here in 1 John 3, in those three words, he's using shorthand (laughs) to remind his readers of the words of Jesus To love like Jesus. Toward the end, he'll unpack that a little further in verse 16. But until we get there, he uses a counterexample. Look at this in verse 12. He says, remember Jesus, remember his love, but don't be like this. Verse 12, he says, we should not be like Cain. Cain and Abel, of course, were Adam and Eve's sons. And Cain, he says, who was of the evil one, born of the evil one and murdered his brother. In other words, his murderous actions were born of evil. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Um, Long story short, 
Uh, Abel displayed faith in God, and Cain displayed lack of faith, and he killed his brother for it. Now, for a long time, uh, both Jewish and Christian traditions understood Cain as the archetypical, the the archetype, the, the main example of a sinner, the model of what hate and sinning looked like in people's lives. That's why John uses Cain as the counterexample of love here as an example of hate. Now, now Cain's murder was the result, ultimately, John is saying, of his love for self. Cain's murder of his brother Abel was ultimately the result of love of self. Keep reading, verse 13. Do not be surprised then, brothers. Remember John speaking to reassure believers that their love's the proof of God's presence. Don't be surprised that the world, or in this case the false teachers who went the way of Cain, as Jude 11 says, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. It should not be surprising that those who love self hate you, is what John is saying there. He says, for we know, verse 14, this is an emphatic distinction between those who left, the false teachers, and those who stayed. For we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Now here is, here is the proof of God's presence stated in our passage as a, as a principle here. If you love the church, uh, which is simply those who are brothers and sisters in calling Jesus Lord... If you love those who are walking in the light of Christ, then you have, he says, passed out of death into life. Whoever does not love abides in death, as Cain did. He's making a distinction between love that brings people into a life relationship with their creator, or those whose love brings people into a death relationship. And there's a direct connection between the way of the cross, the way of fellowship with the Father, and a love that is about others, as distinct from love for self, which takes people into relationship with the evil one. That's why he's contrasting Jesus, way of life, Cain, way of death. And he's saying, Our love is the expression of our own fellowship with the Father or the evil one. And so he's making this distinction uh, throughout. Whoever does not love abides in death, as Cain did. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, verse 15, as Cain was. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So how, how do I know? How do we know? How do I know? How do you know? If I have eternal life in me. Look at verse 16. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. Jesus says the model. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This is an expanded version of the three word phrase in verse 11. Love one another. By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And then this is how love becomes practical, active. Look at verses 17 there and 18. He says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let me summarize with this simple phrase, and I choose these words carefully. (laughs) 
Love must speak to people's real needs. Love must speak to people's real needs. If Christ lives in us, we will love like Jesus in ways that demonstrate death to self according to people's real and ultimate and most important needs. If Christ lives in us, we will love like Jesus in ways that are about death to self, following the way of the cross, ways that sacrifice us according to others' real, truest, deepest, most important and ultimate needs. So let me ask you this, friends, what would your life look like if you pressed reset on your understanding of love and you had the faith to unlearn the love of self and to learn the death to self that expresses the love of Christ? What would your life look like if you pressed reset on your understanding of love and you had the faith to unlearn love of self and to learn the Jesus-like death to self that expresses his love. What would your life look like if you loved in ways that spoke to others' real, ultimate, truest, and deepest needs. That would be a love that helps others find and follow Jesus. You see, we have learned to love in ways that miss this point about others' truest and deepest needs. Let me say it this way, and I'll close with this illustration. If you were uh, sitting on the end of a pier on a lovely summer day, uh, sipping sweet tea, enjoying the sunshine. Clearly not today. But if you're sitting on the end of a pier, sipping sweet tea, enjoying the sunshine, and some Joe Schmo uh, runs by you, jumps off the pier, and, and as he's jumping into the water, he says, I'm doing this to prove my love for you. It would be the ultimate weirdness, right? It wouldn't even make sense. If he jumps in when you don't need it and he drowns to save you when you're sitting on the end of a pier enjoying the sunshine, there would be no need for it. You didn't need someone to jump in because you weren't drowning. (laughs) A lot of us have learned to love in ways that people don't need, but that reflect our own misperception of their needs that are more about us and our love of self. Let me say it this way. We will manipulate people by loving them according to our needs instead of their truest and deepest needs. It's what we do. It's what we've learned. That's what most of us have to unlearn. If we are going to have the faith to have cross-shaped Jesus-like death to self, God-glorifying and purpose-making existence of love. We have learned to manipulate others according to our perception of our needs and love of self instead of a death to self that's about them having the way of Jesus and fellowship with the Father. 
let me, let me say it this way. <laughs> Back to the pier. If you're drinking your sweet tea and uh, you'd, I don't know, gotten sort of drunk on your sweet tea and, and you fell over the pier uh, and you couldn't swim uh, and you were suddenly sucking down a whole lot more Nola Chucky than sweet tea, this Joe Schmo guy then runs by you. Well, actually, you're already in there. Sorry. He runs from the pier to save you from certain death and dies in the process to prove his love for you, then you could say intelligibly, because it would make sense, verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Jesus jumped in because you needed saving. By Jesus' death, he saves us from our own. In every sense of the term, that is the deepest expression of love that exists. And when our lives mirror that, when our lives mirror death to self, motivated by love of others, we will understand the cross and we will unlearn the ways in which we've learned to manipulate people for self. It applies to all areas of our lives. You can parent from that perspective. You can take care of people's souls around you from that perspective. Real love is love that seeks this other person coming into the way of Jesus and understanding fellowship with the Father and thus having their truest and deepest and most important needs met. That's love. Let's pray, friends.